In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this gospel for this morning is is so incredible. Nothing we could preach would add to it, really. And so, we will continue our sermon series (laughs) on the first letter of Peter, which has been called the Epistle of Hope. I just want to remind you from Curtis's introduction last week Peter is writing, or more likely dictating, a letter he wanted to be circulated to the Christian congregations in Asia Minor, which in present day we call Turkey. These congregations were originally established by Christian Jews, but now clearly have grown through the addition of converted Gentiles. The Roman Empire was not overly concerned with other religions. Rome had many gods, and they could accommodate a few more. So the Jews and their religion were thought to be strange, but since they kept to themselves, they were not considered a problem. But these Christians claiming their God was the only true and real God and bothering other religions by seeking to convert them, these Christians were becoming a problem. They were disturbing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Peter's motivation for writing is to warn these Christian congregations of the persecution that is likely to come upon them because they're Christians. The time is about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. The martyrdom of St. Paul has probably just happened. An educated guess is the year 62 AD. Secular public opinion has turned against Christianity, and Peter himself will be crucified within a few years. He sees which way the wind is blowing, and he writes to prepare the churches for the coming ordeal. This letter is intended to encourage those Christians as well as to warn them to help them prepare to respond to the negative hostility which Christianity is already experiencing in the Roman Empire. And of course, this historical situation has direct application to us. As the Christian worldview has fallen out of of favor in the Western world, in, in this century, newly devised worldviews have risen to public popularity. We, we don't notice this quite so much yet here in the Bible Belt South. But go up east or out west from here. 
or travel to Europe or sit in on a university faculty meeting anywhere, and you will find that the Christian faith is usually either ignored or regarded with hostility. So Peter's letter is to us as well. As we work our way through this letter, we will see Peter's counsel and instruction cluster around four interwoven spiritual topics. History, hope, holiness, and heaven. History. Throughout the letter, Peter calls to remembrance our Christian history as we have received it through the scriptures and the traditions and the experience of the church. The term for this unique history is salvation history. It is a history peopled with Jews and Christians and pagans, fallible human beings, all of them, but it is really about God and about an understanding of life that is very different from all other worldviews. Not that all Christians agree on all things. Peter and Paul and James had considerable differences, as did the gospel writers. But they all agreed on the essential proclamation that God's promises made to his people in the Old Testament are now fulfilled. The long-expected Messiah has come. He is Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good and wrought mighty works by God's power. He was crucified according to the purpose of God and was raised by God from the death from dead and exalted to his right hand. And he will come for judgment. This is the history they preached and believed. It was the core of their faith. This too was the faith of the Christians to whom Peter writes this letter 30 years after the resurrection. 300 years later, this is the faith of the Christian council at Nicaea. And 18 centuries later, it is the faith we profess in the creed every Sunday. It's a unique history. We consider it our history. It informs our faith. And this history gives us hope. We look back to the past in order to understand the present and to look forward to the future. Essentially, that's what we're doing in this sermon. And as we see the impact from the past on our present situations, we develop understanding and purpose for the future, hope for the future by looking back to the past so that, as Peter says, both our faith and our hope are in God. Hope. So, what is this hope? St. Paul makes the point that we, that we do not hope 
for what we already have. As I wipe the chocolate icing from my lips, I do not say, I wish I had some chocolate cake. I say, hmm, this cake is really good. What we already have, we don't have to hope for, and so we can rejoice in it. But it is what we want most deeply and do not yet have that we look forward to. That hope, that hope is what in Christian understanding we call heaven. It is when we at last fully come into the presence of our heavenly Father who made us for himself and our restless hearts find rest in him. But this is not just a theoretical hope. The Christian life as Peter understands it, is to be born anew to a living hope, a real hope. And this is a real life lived with the Holy Spirit. And the reality of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds and souls and spirits is convincing evidence that such a hope is credible and that we can count on it. Paul writes in his letters about the Spirit given to us as a guarantee. Paul's experience of the Holy Spirit convinced him that it was definitely a foretaste of something indescribable that is yet to come. And going back to my poor but delicious metaphor of the chocolate cake, my mother's chocolate cake, I can't describe to you how good it was. It was the best. And I know, I, I know I've been to biscottis, but my mother's chocolate cake with chocolate icing, it was the best. When my mother baked it for me on my birthdays because she knew it was my favorite, she would call me into the kitchen and ask me, did I want to lick the pan? <laughs> but this is how we say it in Tennessee. She, she always left a good bit of icing in the pan, and that for me was a foretaste of what was to come in the fullness of time after we ate the meal after I blew out the candles and we began to share the cake. A special time. Perhaps a little foretaste of heaven. We Christians have a definite hope of heaven. We believe in heaven, but we can't be a lot more definite than that. It's so hard to visualize heaven. No matter how hard we try, we fall short. Streets of gold, angels on clouds, imperishable spiritual bodies, a throne of jewels, seas of glass, 
a bride adorned for her husband, chocolate cake with chocolate icing, It's trying to describe the indescribable. It's like trying to describe God. Words fail us. Metaphors seem almost silly. It it is beyond us for now. But the part we clearly get, and we get this from, from John, who is agreeing with Ezekiel, behold... The dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. And Job adds, and we shall see God, and not as a stranger. But beyond that, St. Paul quotes Isaiah No eye has ever seen and no ear has heard and it has never occurred to the human heart all the things God has prepared for those who love him. So Peter and Paul and John and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Job agree that Christians need to hang on to this good news, this hope of heaven. And Peter wants these particular Christians in Asia Minor to keep this holy hope in their hearts and minds even when things are going badly for them personally and even as the church begins to suffer persecution. History, hope, and heaven. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. But there is a fourth strand, and it is holiness. You might want me to go back and talk about the chocolate cake. (laughs) Holiness. Peter reminds us that holiness is the manner of life we are called to. You shall be holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. Now, not all Christians will lead super pious or morally perfect lives. You may have noticed that. But the biblical word holiness does not mean super pious or moral perfection. It means our lives are being specially set apart by God and set apart for God. And however we are, Christian holiness is necessarily a life lived in relationship to God and with God's people. There are no perfect Christians. And there are no solitary Christians either. We are quite a mix But holiness requires that we be in the mix. Last Sunday, after each one was baptized with water, we anointed them with the sign of the cross on their foreheads and said, You are sealed 
by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. We were talking about holiness. They were set apart by God and for God. And to endure to the end with other Christians. We live out this holiness sometimes in fear and trembling and sometimes with joy inexpressible. But we do it together. Just as we did those baptisms together. So when we hear the word holy, it has to do with God, with our being separated from the many and various understandings of life in the world and joined together by God as a people in an understanding of life given by God. Peter will say later in his letter, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. He doesn't mean that we've been chosen because we are a superior or faultless group. The Old Testament Jews stumbled again and again over that misunderstanding. Actually, it's just the opposite. It's the deep concern for our faults and the sincere recognition of our failings that have drawn us together to Christ. Not only our religious failings, but our daily failings in life. We have a heck of a time living life, just like everybody else. How blessed it is to get to live life along with a heavenly father and a loving savior and a life-giving spirit. And this is the blessing Peter refers to when he says, you have been born anew to a living hope. And this is what he means by being holy. And this is what those Christians in Asia Minor kept bothering their neighbors about. To be holy is to receive grace through worship and fellowship. And to be learning how to live life through repentance and forgiveness. To be holy is to have a heart becoming earnest about loving God and about loving other people. Holiness is a manner of life that is becoming a little more like Jesus and a little less like us. To be, to be holy, we are helped by living in the Holy Spirit who has been given us as a down payment or earnest or guarantee which blesses us. The Spirit is that taste 
of the promised heaven. And this same spirit surprises and astonishes us, strengthens our hope, and begins transforming our lives from the inside out. On that first Easter Sunday, transformation all around. Jesus, risen and transformed. The hearts of Cleopas and his friend, transformed as they sat at table. And later on that first Easter night, back in Jerusalem, the 11 disciples find their very lives forever transformed as Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This Christian history, we discover, is actually our history. In the baptisms we had last Sunday, our history, our hope for holiness and heaven were summed up in the profession of faith. Now you don't need to answer. Just listen. It's what Peter is talking about in this letter. Do you renounce the devil and all spiritual wickedness? Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of the world? The present culture. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? Do you turn away from all that and turn to Jesus? Do you receive the Christian history as revealed to you in the Holy Scriptures? Will you walk in God's holy will and commandments? all the days of your life. Peter's instructions to the congregations in Asia Minor about how they are to live out their faith follows from just this. He says, do not be conformed to the worldview of the culture that you grew up in and is all around you. You must continue to live in this world but don't trust what it values. Don't get sucked into its entertainments. Don't get talked out of the new life you have been given. You are to live differently from the ways inherited from your fathers. You are not to live for wealth or prestige or power or security. You are to live for love. Because he first loved you. You are to love other people. From the deepest core of your being. What Jesus called your heart. If you would love God. You must come to love people. For God loves people. And it is God who first loved you. And God, who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that human beings might not perish, but be born anew to this living hope 
the transformation of our hearts and our lives and the holy hope of heaven. In the first part of his letter, Peter lays all this out. And he says, this is the good news which was preached to you. And for this good news, we are deeply thankful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of